and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez, and today we're talking about crowds, but not just crowds, crowd science. And I have one of my favorite crowd experts in the entire world with me, coming to us from the UK. It's Emma Parkinson, Course Director, Post-Grad Programs in Crowded Places from Coventry University. Yay, Emma, welcome to the pod. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. It's so lovely to see folk. And um, I'm just really happy that I can talk to everyone today. So I want to start at the beginning. So crowds have been in the news a lot recently in some fairly tragic circumstances around the world. Um, we're going to be talking about the science behind it. So can you give us a, just a, a little bit of a foundation in, in what crowd science is? So there's a really easy version, and then there's a slightly more long-winded version. Um, you'll probably be unsurprised that as an academic, I really like both versions and I can get really into the long-winded <laughs> version. Fantastic. However, <laughs> the easiest way to think about this is to go back to the principles of a chap called Fruin. Uh, John Fruin came up with two very simple principles which effectively underpin the whole of what we're attempting to achieve with crowd science and crowd safety management. He simply said that when you're managing crowds, you need to avoid the creation of density within crowds and you need to avoid triggering sudden movement. And at the heart of crowd science, everything we're trying to do is about those two things. However, finding somebody who was willing to pay me to just talk about those two things is quite hard. <laughs> and the whole subject, not unsurprisingly, um, encounters a, a great deal more than that. I think the reason I'm fascinated by crowds, the reason I recommend it as an area of study to anyone who's interested, is that in those two simple sentences, you encompass the breadth of human experience. You look at um, everything from how people move, where they move, why they move. We're looking at the physicality of movement and how that movement changes, what influences that movement. So my particular area of specialism as a practitioner is festivals, outdoor events, events with multiple stages. So I'm not necessarily looking at the front of stage movement, although we are very much looking at the front of stage movement and all those things. But what intrigues me is how people move between areas at an event. So literally how physically they will use the space. What do they need to make the space safe for them? What will be their movement if the ground is dry, if the ground is wet, if the ground is concrete, if the ground is mud? How that movement will physically change as they move from hard standing to softer surfaces and vice versa how the movement will change when it goes dark, how the movement will change if we deliberately disorientate them with loud music and flashing lights and pretty colors and artists. As a theater person, most of my college degree is about learning to focus all the attention of the audience on only what I want you to see, which is yeah. not around you in the crowd, frankly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And when you do your job right and you make the beautiful things, how's that gonna impact my crowd? Are they gonna be attracted to it? What speed are they going to move towards it? Are they going to be repelled from it? How are they going to use the space because of it? Are you going to put on artists that they'll walk to? Are you going to put on artists that they will run to? Um, is the artist going to be noisy enough that they'll stay put? Is the artist going to be so noisy that they're uncomfortable and that they leave? Is the artist going to be too quiet? They can't hear it. They decide they'd rather go and see something else. All of these physical production features completely change how an audience will interact with an artist. The age, you know, let's think, let's just think about age. Let's think about the profile. Um, and by profile, I mean in the, the, the kindest psychological terms. We're not talking about awful profiling techniques here. We're talking about how your audience will react in different ways because you could put the same artist on. You could like the same beautiful artist in the same beautiful way, do the same posters for the same concert. But depending on who comes, you've got an entirely different set of crowd outcomes. So we're looking at the dynamics of that crowd, how they move, what speed they move at, how they flow, how they interact with the environment in a physical sense. So how constrictions will change their movement in an environment where they might flow towards each other, impeding each other's progress, something called counterflow, where they might flow across each other, like you get at a crosswalk, you've got cross flow, 
and that will change the patterns and shapes and the speed at which they can move. All of these things might influence how density builds up in crowds. So if you've got a counterflow, the people at the front will slow down, but the people at the back won't. And therefore you'll get density building in your crowd. The same with a cross flow, the people caught in the middle will be slowing down and then people will build up behind them. You've accidentally created density that you didn't want. The same if you funnel a crowd. Um, so we look at all of the properties of a physical space and how the crowd will use it, how they will use it if they're left alone, how we can amend those properties, change those properties to get the crowd to flow more efficiently, more safely. Um, so we might put in one-way systems, we might widen gaps between stages, we might you know, just change the literal physical space we look at how the nature of what there is to see and do in that space will change the movement of the crowd over time. So we look at whether we put artists on at the same time to split our crowd. We look at whether we put artists on at different times to stagger our crowd. And we look at the movement that will change because of decisions like that. We look at everything from what the impact of lights and sound will be on our audience, whether it will draw them to a stage, whether it will deliberately disorientate them, how they will use the space because of that. So we're looking at all the realms of physical and how it changes crowd movement to influence whether you get these sudden conditions of density and sudden movement. But we're also within that looking at the features intrinsic to the crowd. So we often think of these features as being external, extrinsic to the crowd the space they move in, the artist that they're watching, the weather, the time of day and whether it's light or dark and whether you know the, the ground that they're walking on is hard or soft. But we're also looking at the intrinsic features of the crowd. Um, what are their capabilities? What are their desires? Why are they gathered together? How will that change their movement? How will their age change their decision-making? So um, you might get a crowd that is a lot of young people. That is going to change, not just the physical parameters, how safely can they be clustered together? What are the physical um, limitations of their rib cages for the pressure that might be placed on them, the eye lines, the height of the barrier that they're leaning against? But also, what are their capabilities in making decisions about their own safety? Um, because that's going to be different depending upon whether you're a tween, whether you're a teen, whether you're a young adult, whether you're somebody of my age who um, is far too old to be in a mosh pit but still can't resist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what is driving you to be in that crowd? Um, so there's some fantastic very early work by Belonghi who looked at whether crowds were gathered to celebrate, to protest, because that will change how they interact and use the space, but also how you can manage them. And I think what's perhaps really important for people getting to grips with this, there's, there's two features really. The first is that we, we should never be in a position where we are controlling crowds. People speak of crowd control. That's a public order response. If you get to the point where you're controlling the crowd, Everything's already gone wrong. Everything's gone very <laughs> wrong already. You know, um, not that there aren't points when you shouldn't be doing it, because of course there are circumstances where physical barriers impeding movement are your, your last resort. But crowd control is not where we're aiming with this. What we're aiming for is crowd management and using the science, using behavioral science, using physics and motion science, using what we know of live events and the creative tools that are available to us. Um, because this is everybody's endeavor. It's not just the crowd manager's endeavor. Everybody involved in the show is part of crowd management because every decision you make will impact upon the behavior or the movement of the crowd. Um, so it's, a, I guess, a basic call for arms to me that says kind of everybody's a crowd <laughs> manager in a way. Um, but, you know, I actually, I see your point. Everyone is a crowd influencer, either because we're part of production or we're selling the beer or we're um, steward slash house manager, depending on what side of the pond you're on. Uh, you know, you are that that connecting point to what's going on. And it's um, everybody's job to make sure that we're not escalating your two things were either sudden movement or I, I love that sudden movement and increased density and those two together 
have been proven to be deadly. Absolutely. And it's that idea that everybody has a role in this. It might not be a huge role, but it might be a really significant role um, because every area of the craft that we undertake influences crowd management. You know, your bad-tempered set of search and security protocols that put the audience on the back foot means that if later right. down the line you need to communicate with the crowd, you're already psychologically right. isolated from them. You've, and that you've othered them. You've othered them completely. You've become yeah. the outgroup to them. So potentially that could cause you problems later down the line when you need to communicate with them because you're no longer a trusted partner. That commercial partner that put out an exciting tweet about a giveaway that they think is so much fun could cause a sudden movement across your site to achieve the giveaway. The enforcement notice from a local authority who told you to turn the sound down on a stage could cause an unanticipated mass egress of people from that stage who went, it's really quiet here, should we go and look for something else? Yeah. All of these craft skills are connected. And that's why I love crowd management so much because in working beyond control to get to management, what you're doing is you're taking account of all the different impacts on the environment, those intrinsic features of the crowd, how they want to behave, what they desire, what they're looking for from a performance, an event, a protest, a gathering, how that will change their movement, and then how that in turn will be influenced by all the environmental extrinsic features. So in a nutshell, that's crowd management. It's kind of <laughs> standing in a room and just going, study everything, learn everything. But when it comes down to it, it's about those simple generic measures as well. It's about good communications in your organization. So people want to believe it's all about fancy diagrams and pedestrian barrier and great big pieces of mojo barrier. And, and it is. It's about all of those things. But it's also about remembering to pick up the phone and build a relationship with a creative person and go, do you know what? What are you thinking about doing this year? Can we have a chat about how it's going to work? Um, and some of that's paid real dividends for me over the last few years. I've worked with some incredible creative people. And I was at an event this summer where I got a phone, big event, trying to deal with a hundred things at once. And all of a sudden a creative phoned me up and went, somebody's trying to install a water tap in our field. And it's brilliant because we want a water tap in our field because we've got a big dance music event and we want lots of free water. But I don't think you're going to be happy about <laughs> this water tap. And I really wouldn't mind if you would come down. I've told them not to install it till they've spoken to you. And I wouldn't mind if you'd come down and have a chat. And I was like, oh, on my way. Oh, what a beautiful thing. Um, they now understand what they need to be looking for. We've built a relationship that means they trust me to come down there and sort it out. I trust them now to know what they're looking for. I'm delighted. They're delighted. They get the water tap they want. I don't get a weird cue for water forming somewhere that was actually a really important through weight for a wider part of the system. Everybody's a winner. It was a fantastic moment where I suddenly went, that's crowd management. It's not just barriers and flows and systems and analysis. It's all of those things. It's working out densities and flow rates and movements and psychology and noise and timing and environment and all of those but it's also relationships and people and building networks of trust where everybody in the organization is mindful about their impact okay so we didn't talk about the specifics of all the things we're going to talk about but a lot of what you've said has made me think that part of the reason that coming back from covid is so hard is not just staffing shortages though that's significant but it's also I think a breakdown in trust and relationships and a lot of times with additional screening at your entrance gate it puts people on the back foot from the beginning and I wonder if that's and people just being just wicked out of practice <laughs> I think I think all of those things all of those things and more most definitely so I think you you referred to some of those really practical things which are definitely shortages of staff a universal concern um, across the world people are struggling with this the skill base of those staff which is either rusty or, or new or new or the people that were you know great at what they did went elsewhere and got different jobs um, so there's a real combination of those things there is a loss of that implied knowledge within organizations that tacit rather than explicit knowledge so 
the way we did things that we never talked about, we never thought to codify, we never thought to capture. It just happened. And a lot of that knowledge from how to communicate to where to put the trust has gone, right? A lot of things that we took for granted have just vanished, but we didn't know we'd lost them until it was too late. That's certainly been true of crowd safety, that processes that big events just happened don't happen anymore because of the loss of knowledge, because of the loss of key people. I think there is an element with the crowd. I mean, crowd psychologists, and while I have a fascination with crowd psychology, there are people far better at it than me. I urge anybody who's listening to go and have a look at the work of John Drury, Chris Cocking. Um, a lot of that's free available online and will tell you a lot about crowd psychology. We don't know yet what the longer term impacts of this will be. And we've seen some really varied impacts. So among certain types of event, we've seen a reluctance to attend. We've seen even purchase ticket, no show um, figures, really quite considerable, up to 20% for even very high value tickets for things like Premiership Soccer. So we've seen that as an element. We've seen new audiences coming on board who were taking up those tickets, who perhaps weren't traditional fans of certain things before. So that's certainly been a problem in the UK, for instance, where struggling soccer clubs have said, you know what, let's make our midweek matches free. Local people who've not necessarily had so much experience of soccer have gone and not realised the, the behaviours and the mores and the way that you are expected to behave at soccer. Certainly there's been an increase in disorder at soccer again uh, in the last year. Um, the figures have just come out recently in the UK. It's not hugely dramatic, but it is up. It's back to levels we were seeing from around 2012, 2013. There's also a different pressure, which I'm quite fascinated by. There are elements of trust, the searching. There's all of those things that are breaking down, perhaps. But what I think is really interesting is what happens when people aren't happy to go out. They're not ready to go out. They feel uncomfortable about going out. But the, the magic of your event, the desirability of your event is greater than the repellent force of going out and meeting potentially infectious humans again. Mm. Because then what you've got is a real internal conflict within the minds of your crowds because they don't necessarily want to go out, but they don't want to admit to themselves that they don't want to go to this great big magical event that they've been saving up to go to for a really long time that has become totemic. They don't want to be seen among their friends to be not going. They don't want to miss out on what could be a really fantastic experience after two and a half years of basically being locked indoors. But there is still internal conflict mm. about that. And at that point, what they are willing to tolerate. I'm, I'm grumpy at that point. I don't know about anybody else, but I'm arguing with myself inside and I'm, I'm yeah. going to be grumpy when somebody asks me something. And you're going to be grumpy when you get to the event and things are not perfect. Mm -hmm. You're going to be grumpy. Your tolerances and your standards for what is a dense crowd may have changed. So that's a problem. One of the other things that is also a concern is um, after several years of being locked up, people are going, I'm going to see all the things. So I'm going to this event. <laughs> I've got this ticket. I'm going to see every stage. I'm going to see every artist. I'm not going to bed. I'm going to stay up all night and I'm going to see absolutely everything. And I know I've got the children with me, but I'm going to take them to everything. <laughs> um, and I have picked children out of some unholy places this summer, um, places where children had absolutely no right in being, where the only, I, I, I don't have children, I don't know the processes, but that, that makes it sound like I really don't understand it. <laughs> where babies come from. I did do that lesson at school. However, um, digressing entirely. Um, anyway. Anyway, um, but we've seen at certain events this year, people taking children to inappropriate places because the adults want this experience and they've had their children with them all the way through lockdown. Um, they're not missing out on something because they've got their children with them. So they're taking kids to stranger places. So we're even having to have a little look at the densities that we're creating because they might not be fit for mixed audiences. We're having to have a look at how we're managing access to certain types of entertainment. Yeah, um, content. Content. I've picked small kids off the front of barriers for some of the biggest punk bands in the world this summer. Oh my um, goodness. We've taken 
small kids out of very large crowds where the parents have either not realized that the crowd is building up around them, not paid any attention until it's too late. Well, you know, those kind of environments. Um, and that again is, is another facet of COVID that is forcing us to rethink our crowd safety because our parameters have changed. Um, right. So there's, there's all of that going on, which is fascinating. But um, would you allow me to digress into something quite nerdy? Oh, please do. Because there's something else I'm starting to watch. She says, oh, please do. Like she had any idea that I wasn't going to be a complete nerd at some point during this conversation. As, as, as the listeners know, I'm, I'm totally there for that. Go for it. I love the opportunity. Thank you. <laughs> so other things have changed because everybody that we're talking to about this, you know, or not everybody, but a lot of people are focusing on what's changed about the crowd, what's changed about the human experience. Because we are human and we think about what it feels like to be human. It's why so many of these terrible tropes about crowd behavior, that people stampede, that people panic, and they absolutely don't. Um, and these tropes have a curious way of persisting because we're human and we want to explain human experience. And to, you know, we know humans because we're human and we, we're pretty internally focused, right? But what I think is also really important is what else has changed while you weren't looking, right? And this is um, something that I'm trying to start some research into at the moment. So I will say this is only me kicking some ideas around the sandpit at the moment. I'm sure there are other crowd scientists who are already all over this stuff. But from being one of those people who's half practitioner, half academic, we saw some stuff over the summer in the UK event scene that I think is fascinating. And I wanna to talk to people about technology and specifically about smartphones, right? Because just because we went into stasis during lockdown and we thought the world had frozen, the world didn't freeze. And smartphone technology, if anything, accelerated through that phase. Phones became cheaper you know it's it's Moore's law isn't it about the power of processors and how that exceeds and expensive technology gets quick really cheap relatively speaking right there isn't a teenager in the UK that doesn't have enough computing power in their pocket to have put the first rocket on the moon right um we have a lot of computing power in our pocket and it's grown super quick the way that that is changing people I think is really fascinating and this is something I'd like to look into a lot more because I actually think that that little plastic device in your pocket is changing a lot about how people are moving through and using space. And I want to know more about this. Okay, um, I'm intrigued. Okay, can I, can I, can I go some keep, more? Keep going. Right. So there's a lovely bit of safety science because other people will know that as well as a being a crowd safety nerd, I'm a, I'm a sort of organizational theoretical safety nerd as well. And there's a lovely, all the best nerdisms, right? Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm very proud in my nerdishness, right? But there's a brilliant author called Sidney Decker. And I recommend Sidney Decker's work to anybody. It's um, very accessible to read. It's not highly, it's, there's some amazing theory behind it, but he's an excellent science communicator. And Sidney Decker wrote many, many books. I think The Safety Anarchist is an excellent book that makes you question everything that you do. But... He also wrote a book called Drift Into Failure, which is when things change, but you don't notice them changing until it's too late and you've reached a tipping point that then precipitates a different kind of incident or accident. Now, he wrote about this originally with regard to the airline industry and tiny engineering defects that were allowed to multiply because of changes in scheduled maintenance to aircraft. And these, these changes just crept and crept and crept and crept yeah. until all of a sudden, a 72 hour maintenance window had become several months between maintenance. He called these tiny changes decremental failure. Now, we're looking at a slightly different form of decremental failure here, but what we're still looking at is hidden failure incubating in a system, waiting to emerge. Right. And does that sound dramatic enough? I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with that. Waiting I'm, to emerge. If I was at, in a chair instead of a standing desk, I'd be on the edge of my seat. Wonderful. <laughs> then my work here is almost done. So <laughs> this idea of hidden failure that is incubating within 
a system, a process, and crowd safety is a system. Now, over time, the use of mobile phone technology has increased. The power of the phones has increased. Our demand to be online and to be able to get a signal has increased. Events are responding to that by improving connectivity. But also, events want to make apps because they think the app will be great for customer service. The app can be sponsored and it's another form of revenue. They get a free program because the sponsor will pay for the app. The customer gets the app. The customer doesn't care um, where the data's going. They're just really pleased to have a free app. The organizer's like, oh, I no longer have to print a program. I no longer have the expense. Someone's paying for the app. The customer will be really happy because they've got all this information, all this data. And so this has changed over the course of the three years, two and a half years that we were all locked away. And the users of those devices have changed because we've got another three years worth of younger people coming to events as well. So these are changes that were hidden within our system because I haven't heard anybody talking about what the impact of three years worth of change in mobile phone technology will have. But as I've already said, everything you do at an event has the potential to impact on a crowd. And there are a few areas where I think this is vital. Now, there is already published research into the impact of what happens to your walking pace, gait, the rate of accidents that you have if you're looking at a smartphone. That's not new. I was reading a lovely paper this morning by um, Lee Song and Shang um, about what happens to people who walk in a straight line with a mobile phone in their hand. Now, it will be no news flash to anybody that. <laughs> It changes the way you move. It changes the rate of actions. Anybody who's ever observed a teenager in a corridor will be familiar <laughs> with this phenomenon, right? But quite literally, um, what Lee Song and Zhang found out was that people have more chaotic trajectories. They no longer walk in properly straight lines. That's important. If there are walls around them in corridors, they skew away from the walls because they're absorbed in their phone. They've decided that collision avoidance is a thing. They can see the wall, they skew away from the wall. But actually they're colliding more with other pedestrians because they're focused into a smaller space. They're also more likely to um, step in front of cars, step in front of vehicles. So we already know that they're colliding more with other people, that they're walking more slowly, that they're taking up more space. So crowds behind them are interacting with them differently. All of these things that impact, right? We already know that. But I'm moving beyond that and thinking about what else, because there's more that's changed. These phones are changing how people move, but they're also changing why people move and they're changing when people move. And I think that's really important to us in crowd safety. So a few points. Think about this sudden increase in information in the palm of your hand and what that's going to do. When I was a teenager going to festivals <laughs> in the 80s. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, the, 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 sorry, terrible line there. Terrible <laughs> line. Um, transatlantic calls, don't you know? Um, you used to get a program. The program was thrilling, right? You got the program. You got your tent set up. And then the very first thing everybody did was sit around their tent with the program, looking at everything they were going to go to. But the program was A, too big and cumbersome to take out with you, and B, far too precious because it was an artifact of the show. It was lovely. You weren't going to lug a program around all day. You wanted to keep the program. So you would write down, you know, what you were going to see on any scrap of paper you could find or on the back of a packet of cigarettes, the early 80s being a very different time. <laughs> and you would have a rough list of what you were going to see. Now, you would inevitably miss two of those things, get lost on the way to a third Thing, see three of them, then find something else that was completely different and brilliant that you never intended to go to, right? Yeah. The way you moved and used the space was different. Now, young people have got every single artist on every single stage in the palm of their hand. They can set an alarm on their phone. Have you ever been in an audience when, you know, Lizzo's on in 20 minutes, bing, 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 every phone <laughs> goes off and everybody under the age of 20 turns around and moves as one. And you're like, whoa, what happened? This band haven't finished yet, right? <laughs> so not only are they acutely aware of where they're going, they literally carry an alarm clock in their pocket that is telling them to move to the next thing, consume the next thing, consume the next thing. They are absolutely maximizing absolutely rinsing the entertainment that's available, moving from stage to stage to stage to stage to stage, 
People came out of our shows this year complaining about how far they'd walked and how many artists they went to see. I used to mooch around and drink cider most of the day. <laughs> but now it's maximizing the value of their ticket, the value of their experience. So crazy question. Were most of them like massively dehydrated because there's no time to do any body care? I've never even thought of that, but that's a really <laughs> worthy question because they are changing how they interact with the space and it won't just be crowds that that impacts. Their general safety, their levels of tiredness and exhaustion, their dehydration. Um, and unusually in the UK, we had a spectacularly hot summer at times mm -hmm. and that became a real a real thing for us which it's never been before um i think most of us were just so confused by that huge ball of <laughs> we were like, what is that? like wait what now <laughs> um wow the creative of this show got good um, <laughs> you know. but, so what that means though is you've got lots of extra journeys happening on your site which means that you've got many many more dynamics pressures and interludes to look at on your site um You've got many more demands. That's the first thing, really, um, is that there is this constant dynamic movement going on, which perhaps previously didn't necessarily happen. You need to factor that in to your plans for the stage, your plans for occupancy, because if your site never settles because everybody's on the move, it's going to feel different. And everything from the queues for your vendors will be in the way of that constant movement and so forth. So that's worth thinking about. There is the decreasing value of our own signage and our own ability to manipulate the environment to create safety, those one-way systems, those movements, because everybody on your site's got a map in the palm of their hand and they can see the shortest route from A to B. Now you might not, desperately not, want them to walk the shortest route from A to B, but you try persuading them otherwise when they can see it in your hand. Now, on a lot of big shows, the ability to direct people where you want to send them, the ability to create queuing systems where you want those queues to be, the ability to get two audiences to slide past each other without them noticing because you sent one left at one end and one left at the other end, you could lose that because now the audience isn't necessarily treating you as the arbiter of advice. The map in the palm of their hand is giving them that advice. And as technology improves, as signals improve at events, that map is trustworthy. They use that map, why wouldn't they? Um, and so now they're taking their own shortcuts. They're ignoring you. They know where their friends are, right? So again, it's back to the types of journeys and things that they're taking. When I was a kid, we would lose each other. We would get split up, but we'd say, right, on the hour, go to the cider bus. Cider being a big thing in my West Country youth. <laughs> on the hour go at the side of us if you don't make it somebody from the group will be there and we would arrange to meet each other they don't need to do that anymore they're tracking each other on their phones they can see where each other is they move towards each other the driver to get to each other is now in the palm of their hands potentially but also when one of them sends a message saying here come and look at this again you're getting movements triggered but you're also getting extra movement because no longer are people hanging out waiting for their mates which might take an hour the mates are there instantly, and let's all go off on another mission. Right? That is absolutely fascinating. So, are we with me so far? Can I continue to nerd out about mobile oh, phones? Is this is oh, this acceptable? Please. I have so yeah, no, I have so many. Like, like, is there an opportunity there to manipulate? Is the wrong word, but use the map on their phone to this, help. Yes, Help this is that. where we're going. This is exactly where I want people to start thinking about. Now, there is some fantastic technology that's already being used in airports where you get the app. You make the airport map more valuable to the, the user than anything else. You might not be able to manipulate the audience using the map, but you do know where they are and you're getting real-time feedback and you can change things about the environment mm -hmm. based on how that would. So flip this problem on its head. Not where can I send the audience? How can I change things within my environment to react to where the audience are going, potentially? So think of it in both of those ways. So continuing on this nerding out theme, and again, going really left field, um, sometimes we say, yeah, they can find their friends. They can track their friends. They know where their friends are. They're in constant WhatsApp contact with their friends. But what if they're not? 
because we are now dealing with a generation that has often never been out of contact with their friends since they were small. They could text each other in the middle of the night. They can text each other at the weekends. They're constantly in touch in a virtual sense, even if they're not physically together. And certainly during the pandemic, that virtual contact became real. It became a lifeline to many people. So a lot of people would say, well, we'll just, we'll just get rid of the phone signal. We'll just make it so they can't access this stuff. We can't do that stuff. If you suggest that to a teenager, they, they look at you in wait, absolute... Wait, wait, wait. wait. If, you ex if you say that to me, I'm going to flip out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, remember so no. those hierarchies of need when we were talking about food, shelter, whatever. Right, Wi-Fi is right up there. Right, <laughs> right up there. Um, in another part of my working life, I get students to design emergency control rooms. And the one thing they always forget to put in is Wi-Fi and phone signal. Because to them, it's ubiquitous. It's like oxygen. Why, why wouldn't there be <laughs> Wi-Fi in the room? They never even remember it, right? So if you get to a point where you have no signal, and let's be honest, at festivals in particular, this is a concern for us. It's a problem because the network overload is substantial. We're at times, not universally by any means, but I think it's worth investigating. We are watching certain groups of young people replace that virtual contact with physical contact because they've never been on their own. It's not just that they don't even know how to be on their own. They can't countenance being on their own. Being lost is a horrifying concept. Being lost and not being able to contact your friends is the stuff of nightmares. And so in certain cases, we're seeing people replicating that virtual contact with physical contact. And building chains of teenagers, holding hands, moving together through audiences. Oh, boy. Just before the pandemic, we started to see this happening. And it was fascinating. It's not universal by any means, but there are certain shows where we see more of it than others. And I was like, why are we seeing this contact? Why are we seeing these chains of people moving through audiences together? And what you're getting is a chain of teenagers. They get the biggest friend at the front, their second biggest friend at the back. They all link arms and they pile through the audience together. We started seeing it. And I got some of my crowd managers at a festival to go, look, if you manage to interact with one of these chains, if you manage to catch one, find out what's going on. Find out why this is suddenly a thing. They caught one of these chains and in the nicest possible way, they were like, what, what are you doing? They were like, well, we don't want to lose each other. We can't lose each other. We don't know how to find each other. They're developing new tactics for finding each other by never being out of contact in the first place. But when you get a chain of people moving through a dense crowd at speed, you're getting waves triggered left, right, and center. It doesn't take many people to cause a small wave at the back of a crowd, which then amplifies enormously. And if we go back, right back to the beginning of me nerding out in grand style about crowds, if we're looking at preventing sudden density and sudden movement, the reason we're looking at doing that is because we're minimizing opportunities for accident. We get accidents when people are crushed standing up, compressive asphyxia, when literally they're so close together that the human rib cage can no longer mechanically breathe or where people are having heart problems or where people are, and this is a bit gruesome, I'm sorry, but we, we do talk about the nature of crowd accidents where people are vomiting and then inhaling the contents because they can't get away from their own body in their own space. But one of the other things we talk about is people being crushed because they fall over in crowds. And when one person falls over in a high density crowd, somebody else will be pushed on top of them, somebody else will be pushed on top of them. And you get crushing as people have fallen over on top of each other. Now, if you get a wave in a crowd, you can be very easily knocked off your feet and that process can begin. And the waves are really dangerous because waves propagate through crowds. So you get a tiny thump at the back of a crowd and you watch as that wave spreads like a fan through the crowd. And before you know it, hundreds of people are being shoved forward. It's like the domino experiment. Have you ever seen when you were a kid, people made domino rallies and they would push one domino and you'd get thousands of dominoes falling over. It's partly like that. But did you ever see one of those experiments where you start with a teeny tiny domino 
and then next to it, a bigger domino and a bigger domino and a bigger domino and a bigger domino until you've got a domino the size of a slab of Stonehenge at the end, right? But you flick one tiny domino, maybe half a centimetre high, sorry, quarter of an inch, this is an international podcast, <laughs> but it amplifies and amplifies and that tiny amount of pressure is capable of building and building and building until it knocks over the giant domino at the end, right? The same thing happens in crowds, that wave amplifies. The mathematical reasons it happens are slightly different, but nevertheless, the amplification happens. If you get a chain of people knocking people off their feet because they're moving through the audience at speed quickly, you are propagating waves through a crowd and you are increasing the likelihood. So that fear of being lost, that inability to cope with the idea of not being in contact can be traced all the way through to a physical change in crowd dynamics. How nerdy is that? A sociological, psychological change, which is triggering a movement in a crowd. I've got to find out whether this is happening or not. It's speculation at the moment, but that's certainly what teenagers have been telling us anecdotally. And we're seeing the impact of those chains on crowds. So that's fascinating. And then my final nerd moment, my final note Please continue. Uh, for this. It's not just the device in your pocket that's changing how people are interacting and moving and using crowded spaces. It's how that device is changing your social relationship with the world and how you present yourself to the world. So it's changing the driver for attendance. Not only can you see all these fantastic things that you can get to, not only can you see what your mates are doing, so you want to move towards their friends, but for a whole group of people, it's no longer about seeing the artist. It's about being seen to see the artist. It's about the selfie that you get to put on Instagram. It's about the TikTok that you made of you in front of the artist. This is potentially massive for us. Because in crowd safety for years, where we've had a big event, where there's a potential for a large dynamic movement across a crowd site, we often mitigate that by splitting that audience across several events. If you go to a festival in the UK, you get your program, if you're my age, or you get your mobile phone, if you're anybody younger than me, and you go, oh man, two of my favorite bands are playing at the same time. That's really unfair. That's really mean. It's also not an accident. <laughs> we did that on purpose, potentially, to split the crowd, to reduce that potential for dynamic movement. It's called competitive scheduling, and it's in great use all over the world. Now, I'm not about to tell you to stop competitive scheduling because this isn't fully researched yet by any means, and it will be different for different audiences. So do not take this as a reason to stop competitive scheduling. But do be cognizant of the impact that might be having on your event. Because if you are an event that drives social media engagement, that thrives on its Instagram and its Snapchat and its TikTok and whatever everybody younger than me is using this week, um, because I mentioned and I still think Facebook is marvellous. Um, <laughs> if that's the case, then you need to be prepared for people getting into your crowd, getting the selfie, getting out of your crowd and then getting the other one. In, joining the other crowd. And of course, because the driver is not just to be at the event, it's to get the good picture, pushing through your crowd to get to the front halfway through the set. Again, triggering the potential for movement in your crowd, triggering two different kinds of movement, the dynamic crossover between those two artists where previously you didn't have a problem. So walkways between those two artists. And at the moment, this is small. It's not a really huge thing. And we're not necessarily seeing that dynamic cross between these, those artists impacting in a significant way. But as we've said, it only takes one very tiny domino to cause a giant movement across a crowd. And if you get just a few people pushing in at the back of a very dense crowd, you've got the potential to trigger waves across your audience. And if you've got Instagrammers desperately shoving to the front halfway through a set because they got one artist and now they're getting the next artist, you've got a problem. It might mean that where previously you didn't think it needed a secondary barrier at your event, 
Maybe now you need a secondary barrier at your event to stop these waves propagating across your audience. Maybe you've got two site events next to each other. So you need to think about segmenting with a T barrier across your event so that you're not getting sideways waves propagating across. When one artist plays their hit, you get your little video of their hit and then they leave. It might be that you have to stop artists playing their hits halfway through a set because that can then trigger people leaving to go to another competitively scheduled set. So do you see what I mean about how the tiniest things have the potential to have this huge knock-on, which in this case could result in the triggering of sudden movement in areas of density. I'm now nerding out spectacularly. <laughs> for, the, for the benefit of the tape, Danielle's gone ever so quiet. <laughs> oh yeah, but my head is just like whirling around. I'm like, what about this and what about that? I, and I don't even do festivals. And I'm like, well, what about this situation? You know, because one of the things is, you know, all this stuff applies to any crowd in any place. So I'm just uh, mm. moving examples around in my head. Like Friday shopping center promotions, transport yeah. hubs and infrastructure, all changed by access to information. And it's what does that information trigger in the movement of a crowd? But also, how is the social environment, people's needs, wants, desires, drivers to move, changed by mm -hmm. the nature of that information? And I think you can draw a direct line between information and crowd dynamics. At the moment, we don't know whether that's a dotted line or whether it's the potential to be a really big, thick line in Sharpie. <laughs> in Sharpie all, with lots of... <laughs> and all the best lines are drawn in Sharpie. We all know that. Um, you know, at the heart of this, you can't get away from the fact that this is a live event show and the best <laughs> lines are drawn in Sharpie. Um, mm -hmm. But we don't yet know. This is all speculation. Yeah. But we've had three years off functionally. And there is this temptation to believe that the industry froze, was set in aspect while we were away. But because crowd management is influenced by so many things beyond simply the features of the crowd, the world didn't stop. It moved on without us. And now there is this potential for latent problems buried in our systems. So that is what's obsessing me right at this moment. So one thing you didn't mention that, um, that I've noticed, especially at events with college kids and high school kids, is everybody has... Uh, headphones mm. and they're quite and headphone technology has gotten especially in the last couple of years fantastic to the point where it's no noise canceling to the extent that they don't hear people around them if they have them set up that way and I've 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 seen people chasing after people to get their attention I've seen people um, miss conversations I've seen people miss the beginning of a show because they weren't listening at all so that that's, that's a, you know and again it's 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 an age group you know I'm, I'm not seeing the uh the dance mom with that but I am seeing her <laughs> kids with it <laughs> I think that's a fantastic observation that very similar vein technology that's changed radically in mm -hmm. the few years that we were away and because we've been away we haven't adapted to it perhaps in quite the same way um but that's a fantastic observation people who can't receive safety messaging anymore and okay at a festival the chances are they won't have their headphones in because right. hopefully they're listening to what they paid to listen to but a silent discos the minute they get noise cancelling we've got problems you know yep. that kind of thing but if you're looking at those other domains of crowded places if you're looking at transport if you're looking at retail if you're looking at ingress and egress ingress and egress perfect example where they aren't actually engaging with the show yet. Brilliant example of where technology has the potential to really impact, in this case, on A, our audience's safety awareness, and at that point, we are diminishing their capability, and B, how we need to communicate with them. Do we need to think you know, about flashing lights and flags and signs? Now, a good venue will already be super accessible to people who struggle with hearing, but that's by no means every venue and it's by no means consistent. Um, and yet that's somewhere we, we need to be because our social construction of the capability of the crowd is totally different. 
Um, I think that's a fantastic example. I absolutely love it. And I'm going <laughs> to add it to my list. I'm there you go. Co-author of the paper on this. <laughs> I can't wait to, to see what else you find out. Um, unrelated to the technology, but related to crowds coming back. I will say, in general, what I have also seen is a great deal of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, especially people uh, watching their kids perform. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, a, a great deal of joy. So and that's what will rebuild us. That's mm-hmm. what people will see. And we said to people with the advice we put out this summer start small, build your confidence because it is an amazing thing. That I, I have been, I would say, injured perhaps the wrong word in crowd <laughs> events this summer but I've come out of them with the sorest face you can imagine because I've done nothing but smile for several <laughs> hours and I'm not used to smiling anymore. And I've smiled so much that my face Yeah, yeah like doing that thing with your jaw. Or your, yeah. Get your hair, uh, yeah. Again, that's not really coming across on the podcast. But, nah, it's um, audio. <laughs> absolutely that. And the joy of the, these events, the reason we do this, that's what's going to bring this all back. And we, we as a, you know, as, as humans, we kind of fell into this hole. We will climb out of it. We will mm-hmm. climb out of it. But it took us a long time in that in that that COVID hole. It will take us a while to climb out. And people will climb at different speeds. But absolutely, remembering why we did this. If you're working an event at the moment, somebody did it for me this summer, and it was great advice. We were we were at the height of oh, this is hard. Oh, this is exhausting. Why is this not working? Why is this going wrong? Where, where are we at with this? And we were at the height of that. And somebody just took me out of my little cubby hole and took my radio off me and went, let's just go and have a little look at the event. And we stood on a hill at the top of our event and we watched the most magical event in the world. And we reminded ourselves why we do this. Mm-hmm. And we looked at the joy we were creating in people. And we looked at the insane creativity that had been unleashed among our artist friends, among the public, everybody. So if it all gets a bit much, do that for somebody. Just take them out for a step second. Back. Take them out for a second. Look at what we did. Look at what we made. And I think that is what's going to get us through this. Look at what we can do. Look at what we made. Look at how we made people not just safe, but happy. So happy. I couldn't finish it any better than that. So I'm not going to try. If you would like to send me an email, email address is podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. Check out our website, eventsafetyalliance.org. See how that works right there. Uh, we'd love for you to become a member. Also, if you uh, listen to this podcast, like, rate us, and review us because it helps other people find the pod. Emma, you are my favorite. Thank you so much. I, my head is spinning. Um, and we will try to put links to some of that stuff in the show notes. Um, thank you. Thank it's you it's my you. pleasure. Thank <laughs> you so much for letting me nerd out on my favorite subject. <laughs> okay, everybody. Stay safe. <laughs>